0: When the FBI said hello, initially it was a big shock. The agent who introduced himself and said, FBI, we would like to talk to you, gave me some feedback. But I recovered rather quickly. They put me in a car and I asked him a question. I asked, uh, so am I under arrest? They said no. And then I came up with this uh, brilliant way of trying to break the ice. I asked him, what took you so long?
1: In the much mythologized field of espionage, there is no character more mythologized than the sleeper agent, the operative sent into hostile territory under an assumed identity, perhaps for years of their lives, to spy on the enemies of one's nation. This week's guest, Jack Barsky, performed just such a role for the Soviet intelligence agency, the KGB, working undercover in the United States from 1978 to 1988. And at the risk of giving away the ending, he's still there now. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Jack Barsky on the Big Interview. Jack Barsky, welcome to the Big Interview. Let's start at the start. When you were first approached by the KGB, what sense did you get of what they saw in you? What what skills did you have that they valued? All
0: well, I knew that I was pretty smart, and I was a uh, I was a dedicated communist. They never told me specifically what they were looking for. I found that out much later in a uh, printed interview that by uh, the ex-head of department S within uh, the section one of the KGB, which was things that you can't learn, that you just have, that's part of who you are. But when they first approached me, it was just uh, it was just like a lot of talk and, and back and forth and so forth. I didn't know what they were looking for. And as I said, they never
1: told me. So if they clearly perceived that you had the stuff that they couldn't teach, what was the stuff they did teach you? What, what did training involve at this point? The training primarily was focused
0: on how to operate as an agent. That took quite a bit of time. There was also a lot of self-study, so to speak. When I started the training that was in Berlin, I had one task was to broaden my horizon with regard to culture, music, the arts and all that. So uh, I was able to go to the opera and uh, ballet and, and theaters courtesy of the KGB. They pay for it. Initially, I was supposed to go to West Germany, which sort of made sense, right? Because no culture difference, no language barrier. But they told me that you, every everybody who works abroad needs to be fluent in a second language. So I threw myself, uh, with all I had, into the study of English. And I got so good within a year that they figured out that maybe, just maybe... I had what it takes to actually impersonate an American.
1: We'll come shortly to your deployment to the United States, but I want to go back to that. your description of yourself as a dedicated communist uh, at that point in East Germany. What did you personally think that the Western world was like? Did you think it was something that needed to be overcome and or destroyed or converted to the the true path of Marxist-Leninism?
0: Yeah, goes without saying. Uh, We really knew, and this is uh, an apostrophe, so uh, we knew that the West was evil. It's very interesting. It was a big lie that, for instance, uh, that we were taught uh, West Germany was governed by neo-Nazis. What is interesting that there were some ex-Nazis at high levels in the West German government. So when you tell a big lie and there's a an element of truth inside of that lie. The lie is much easier to swallow. We knew that capitalism was bad. Uh, The workers were were being exploited. And we knew that uh, imperialism, that means the Western world uh, uh, ruling over the, uh, the third world countries was bad too. All of that had to be eradicated to make the world a better place for everybody. I had no doubt that this was the truth
1: i think it's very hard for people now to understand how completely uh, alien huge parts of the world were to each other at that point in the cold war that you 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 could grow up in one side of europe and know almost nothing about what life was actually like in the other side of europe there's obviously no internet there's no social media there's very very restricted news from you know travelling in either direction across the iron curtain so when do you arrived in the united states in 19 19- Seventy-eight. How different was it uh, from what you had been brought up to expect?
0: I became acquainted with the difference uh, during a practice trip to Canada. I spent uh, three months primarily in Montreal and then in a couple of other cities uh, just to get acquainted to what it would be like to live in a country that Canada was considered like a junior United States. And clearly, It was interesting with regard to the phenomenal difference of the standard of living and the variety of goods that you could buy. I mean, it was day and night, but I was ideologically prepared to swallow that and understand that and and explain it to myself. And that because we were taught that the riches of the Western world were acquired by stealing resources from the third world. You know, including bananas and minerals and all that stuff. You know, I didn't have any ability to judge whether that was true or not. I just believed it, period. So uh, that didn't change my initial entry into, the, into Canada and then into the United States. did nothing to change my uh, conviction that communism was the right idea to, to serve and sacrifice for.
1: So after you're properly deployed in the United States and you, you have a, a, a new name uh, and a new identity and you're, you're building yourself a plausible backstory, but beyond that, as you understood it, what was your mission? What did the KGB want you to actually do for them? First of all,
0: they didn't tell me everything. And They never told me everything. That was part of the uh, utmost secrecy with which the KGB operated and the severe compartmentalization. So you were only told what they thought you need to know to do the job.
1: There's an old joke along these lines, isn't there? My job is so secret, even I don't know what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) So I was prepared to do political intelligence. In other words, the dream was for me to get to a, a position in society where to befriend Decision makers in foreign policy, or at least influencers, and they threw, threw at me some interesting institutions. One of them was uh, Columbia University, the in- Institute for Foreign Policy, where Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the the uh, National Security Advisor for President Carter for some time, uh, the Hudson Institute, and the Trilateral Commission. But you know, I, I, to me, that was I, when I came to the U.S. These were just names and words. The other thing was, and this was hammered into me all the time. You need to get to know as many people as you can and find out uh, whether they would be worth talking to with regard to recruitment. I did that. I never got to any policy makers or, or influencers. Then over time, I got some special assignments that only I could execute because they required travel outside of the zone that the diplomatics spies so to speak, were held to outside of uh, Washington DC and, and New York. Then towards the end of my uh, assignment, or before I quit, I was also asked to, to steal technology. Mm. I wound up uh, stealing a, a rather uh, sophisticated software package. Whether they used any of that, I have no idea. I never got any feedback as to how valuable I was to them. And the one thing that they didn't tell me that I know now for a fact is what was most important to them was my being in the United States because there were some some periods during the height of the Cold War when it was possible that diplomatic relations between the United States and the Soviet Union would cease to exist. And then the only individuals uh, behind enemy lines, so to speak, would have been me and a And a handful of others.
1: Were you actually able to tell uh, Moscow anything else useful, though? I've I've always wondered this about espionage, especially people deployed in the field, how much they're ever actually able to tell their handlers that their handlers couldn't have found, well, in this case, from reading the New York Times.
0: Yeah, believe it or not, and it's interesting that you mentioned the New York Times, I periodically sent reports uh, about the attitude, the uh, reaction of of the American people to important uh, events, international events. Since I was living amongst Americans, my reports were most likely a whole lot more valuable than what they got from the diplomats who read the Times and the Washington Post and then copied the stuff. I think that was valuable to some extent. I don't want to really build myself up. And as people have advised me not to be too uh, too self-critical here. But I tell you, if I had to judge my effectiveness as a spy from the outside, I would say it was pretty much a failure. But so were many of the others.
1: So you, you don't think anything you reported back, anything you actually did made that much of a difference to anything?
0: I believe that is correct. I believe that is correct. I just couldn't think of anything that could have moved the needle one way or the other in, in world, uh, politics. I know a lot of examples of others on both on the American and, and the Soviet side where people actually did make a difference, but these were people who were in positions of power, who were moles in the FBI and the CIA, moles in the KGB. I was outside, you know, so honestly, I'm, I'm very glad that, uh, I wasn't able to do much damage because you know, The united states is
1: my homeland now and and it was your homeland for a very long time while you were leading this double life uh, with dual identities indeed dual families but in that 10 years did you feel at the time like this was still a worthwhile enterprise or or was a sort of evolution away from your commitment a bit more gradual than that
0: you know this one thing that i really didn't do which is interesting because that is sort of against my character. I, I never really questioned what I was doing and uh, was it worthwhile? Was I being a bad boy? I just like, stoically did what I was asked to do or tried to do as good a job as possible. You know, I, what I did lose was the, the very, very strong belief in communism. Because uh, once I started living as part of American society, particularly when I, when I uh, first entered the corporate world with a profession, I, I became a computer programmer. I realized that capitalism wasn't evil through and through because, you know, my bosses were nice. Uh, I got paid well. And I got free lunch. It felt almost like it felt almost like back in uh, GDR where you taken care of, so to speak. So there was a movement, an ideological movement afoot in those days is called the convergence theory uh, that was invented, I think, by social democrats in, in Western Europe that, you know, posited that eventually communism and capitalism will converge in some way and will merge the good aspects of either of both societies would uh, dominate and that would be the end of the end of the world. That would be a different sort of paradise on earth than the communist paradise on earth. Of course, either one didn't work out and we were just as messy as we were many decades ago. And I don't think that mess is gonna bear up anytime soon.
1: I mean, for all your your stoic endurance uh, of your strange double life and your general inclination to follow orders, as you put it, there is this dramatic moment in 1988 where the KGB try to extract you and you decide you don't want to go. Um, Did you surprise yourself when you found yourself thinking, actually, no, I'm not going?
0: It was a phenomenal internal struggle. And I tell people nowadays, uh, in hindsight, is um, that was the moment, the moment of decision, when I made the right decision, that was a moment when I joined the human race, when I became a real human being, because the the driving force behind that decision was love for an 18-month-old daughter of mine, who I was, if you're a father, You know, what unconditional love means it's different from loving a woman because you always want something back. It's different from any other love. It's because when you're taking care of a fundamentally at a time, helpless little being, something stirs up in your heart. And I was trying to figure out how can I take care of this girl when I go back? And I couldn't, I couldn't come up with an answer. So, and I went back and forth, back and forth, you know, if I, if I stay, the KGB told me that I was being investigated by the FBI. Uh, They thought that. And so that's why I I was called back. So there was possibility that they were right. And then when I uh, told them that I would not obey the order, then uh, there was a chance that they would come after me. So I was taking a tremendous risk when I eventually decided that I'm staying, it was not the result of an intellectual process. It was ultimately a feeling that said, I gotta stay.
1: I do want to ask shortly about the point a few years later at which the FBI did realise who you were and what you were doing. But in between that, of course, there's this moment where the KGB sort of gets ushered into history's dustbin by the events of 1989. Um, And you as an East German in particular, where were you when you saw the footage of the Berlin Wall coming down? and, And how did you feel at the time?
0: I, I remember this as, as if it was yesterday. I was watching it on TV in my living room in Queens, New York. And I was like, I mean, this was like, what? From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically. Take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something, as you can see, almost a party on. Now, I understand I wasn't the only one who was surprised. So was the CIA, so was the Stasi, so was the entire world. This came so rapidly. And uh, that triggered my drive to find out what, what the heck, what, what, what was going on, why did that fall apart, since I was isolated. I went back to East Germany once uh, every two years and uh, everything to me looked fine, you know, there were more goods in the stores and uh, everything looked like wonderful and like we were going in the right direction. And when that fell apart, I said, I really needed to find out why and what was the underlying reason. And in those days, what happened was that the internet was available to do research. And I pretty rapidly found out that country that was my homeland was based on nothing but lies. And the, the whole communist ideology, as it was taught to us, was a bunch of lies. You know, I was able to to read the unredacted uh, works of Vladimir Lenin, who was my big hero. And so when we were reading the stuff, certain sections were not available, such as, you know, Lenin's uh, edict to kill enemies of the revolution or peasants who had too much land and so forth. And so it didn't take very long for me to understand that... Uh, I had served the devil. That was something I had to digest, but you know I you know what I did there? I went private. I focused on the family, all right? I just sort of tried to forget that I ever was an agent and I was pretty successful. Two years after the, no, one year after the war came down, uh, I I was married to the mother of this child. We bought a house in the suburbs and we had another child. And so that was, you know, I was now focused on my version of the American dream and pretty much serving the family. And that went on for another eight years until the FBI said hello.
1: This is what I wanted to ask about next. Were you able to put that entirely out of your mind, the idea that one day that knock on the door or that phone call might come? And I'm just wondering if there's any level at which it was almost a relief when it did. First of
0: all, when I found out that the FBI wasn't after me, you know after three, four months and nobody said hello, then I, I decided I'm good. Since I had broken the relationship with the KGB completely, so there were no spies uh, paraphernalia in my house, I was not engaged in any kind of activity that would indicate that I'm up to no good. So I figured I would just like disappear as a private individual and uh, live out my life in the United States, not ever disclosing to anybody where I came from, and also not ever able to go back to Germany because I was afraid to uh, apply for a passport. The the first uh, attempt failed, so that I didn't want to touch. So yes, when the FBI said hello, initially it was a big shock, it was a surprise. The agent introduced himself and said, FBI, we would like to talk to you, gave me some feedback. The blood disappeared from my, from my face. <laughs> I went totally white. But I recovered rather quickly. Uh, they put me in a car and I asked him a question. I asked, uh, so am I under arrest? They said no. And then I came up with this brilliant way of trying to break the ice. I asked him, what took you so long? <laughs> And you know, they they couldn't, there were two fellas in the car. They they couldn't uh, resist a bit of a smile. And uh, so when we finally wound up in the motel where they uh, did the first round of debriefing, I volunteered that I said, listen, you know, probably quite a bit about me. You know that I'm a family man. I have two children and a wife. I love my family. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want my children to be, uh, become wardens of the state and my wife, deported because he became a citizen, because she was married to me, so really it was illegal. And the only way out for me, I know, and I know it's not a guarantee, but the only way out for me is to cooperate to the fullest. I think I convinced them.
1: And I believe I'm right in saying you you developed quite a friendship with at least one of the agents who who found you. Were you able to tell them anything they didn't already know or couldn't have guessed about your job and the people who'd sent you?
0: I believe so. I mean, the the debriefing went over four or five weeks, twice twice a week. They went to every minute detail of my life. And then also... the methods of operation how the KGB trained people how we interacted uh, we, how we communicated i mean every little detail and it uh, i was told this was very useful information and quite frankly if you if you want to analyze the activities of the FSB or the SVR the russian intelligence they are, they still operate in similar in a similar fashion as the KGB did simply because they were trained by KGB guys, right?
1: Mm. But this is one of the reasons your story is so interesting, is that, that right now Russia is it's run by people of a similar generation and one man in particular of a very similar background to yours, in that he was a KGB agent, he was for a time stationed in East Germany in Dresden. Um, do you see the same mentality at large now that you were raised with and grew up with, Driving the way Russia acts in the world,
0: but but you need to understand that uh, most of the KGB were trained differently, had different tasks, worked in in groups and so forth. I was a lone wolf, mm. so my training was completely different. And also with regard to you know doing damage to people that we didn't like, you know I never I never saw anything anything like that. I never touched it. But you know what we all had in common, we we really learned how to lie, that's for sure. (laughs) And what enabled Vladimir Putin to rise to the top in Russia was KGB network that he had. Because when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know that the KGB had the the elite. I mean, the KGB jobs were, everybody wanted to be a, a member of the KGB because That's where you had privileges. That's where you were, you know, a a member of the powerful elite. And and when Soviet Union collapsed, what did those folks do? Three different things. The thugs joined the Russian mafia. The other two either uh, became industrialists, and some of them became oligarchs, or they went into politics. So what do we have in Russia? Who rules? The thugs, the oligarchs and the politicians, and most of them were either in the KGB or had links to the KGB.
1: Do you think it's a reasonable assumption, though, that the FSB is still running operatives in a similar role to the one you once performed for the KGB, that there there are people at large in the United States seeking to influence American decision-making, American politics, and so on?
0: I can't prove a negative, but I doubt that they're doing it because logically we we as a group and there were three waves of illegals that the kgb sent uh, to the united states i i was a member of the third and last one we we didn't make much of a difference and we were extremely hard to to find initially as candidates they literally they would say they were looking at thousands of candidates to find one extremely expensive to train and maintain The Russian intelligence services don't have the resources that the KGB had. So what I can see based on what's known of uh, Russian intelligence activities, Vladimir Putin is throwing volume at the task and he's using a lot of either untrained or poorly trained individuals. And he doesn't mind if they get caught. That's different. Mm. The KGB was very careful. They wanted to avoid anybody whether they would be under diplomatic cover or us to be caught. Putin, you know he wants to scare people, and I, and it's working. So remember the redhead who uh, Putina mm. uh, who uh, managed to befriend some people from the National Rifle Association?
1: a russian woman accused of being a secret agent pleaded guilty to conspiracy charges in washington thursday maria butina admitted to infiltrating political groups in the u.s to gather intelligence the charges against her are not connected to the Mueller probe but she began meddling in american politics around the time of the 2016 u.s presidential election a sentencing date has not yet been set
0: she communicated with moscow through social media so here's the thing, you can't, when, when, when it becomes a, a public knowledge that there, were, there was somebody at Russian spy court in the United States, immediately people are asking, so how many more are there? And I get this question a lot, question a lot and I tell people the answer is quite a few, <laughs> but they're all not well-trained.
1: Where are you on the idea that Russia has been running this extraordinarily influential operation upon the Republican Party in particular?
0: I think they have been running influential operations uh, uh, to influence both parties, particularly uh, their efforts on the internet. See, I have a background in information technology and I'm well acquainted with uh, cybersecurity specialists as well as people who, uh, who operate in, in counterintelligence. The pattern is that what the Russians do on the Internet, they attach themselves, they create artificial persona, people that don't exist, who then attach themselves to radical groups left and right and try to influence them. Because the difference between the Soviet Union and Russia and uh, with regard to the United States is the Soviet Union the, the even the KGB folks had, had lived in the United States did not understand the United States, did not have a clue how the United States operates. And uh, that has changed. We, there's a lot of Russians that have studied in the U.S. There's a lot of Russians who have done business with with the United States. And uh, uh, there is very, very good knowledge amongst the, the intelligence folks that... Uh, run the influence operations. And uh, and so, you know that we, the United States right now has a, a split between the left and the right and the twain, there's almost no bridge left anymore. And the Russians are trying to make the, this rift wider and uh, they have succeeded to some degree. I don't believe for one minute, they thought that Donald Trump would be easier to, to work with than Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, as s- Secretary of State, invented the reset with Russia.
1: In anticipation of uh, this important meeting and our, our time here together, I wanted to uh, present you with uh, a little gift which represents what President Obama and Vice President Biden and I have been saying. And that is, we want to reset our relationship. And let's, do it, let's do it together. So we will do it together, okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's playing nice with Vladimir. And uh, Donald Trump was just, he was sweet-talking the, the dictators of the world. But Donald Trump is too much of an egomaniac <laughs> to, to play second fiddle to any of those dictators.
1: We are regrettably running out of time. So I just wanted to ask you for some closing thoughts about that period in which you were a double agent with with two identities, um, nearly 10 years as a a KGB spy in the United States. It's a possibly weird question, but but is there anything about that period of your life that you you look back on fondly? Let let me tell
0: you something. What, What I liked the most was when I had this job as a programmer, when I started working as a programmer, first of all, I could uh, be engaged in creative, intellectually creative work. And secondly, all of a sudden I had a bunch of friends, team members who, who I liked and who liked me. So it was reintegration in society mm. because I had lived uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much isolated uh, to, to a large degree for 10 years, five years of training in Berlin and Moscow. I never went to work, I never had a team. And then five years uh, in the United States, uh, first year I didn't work. Then in three years I worked as a bike messenger and then I went back to college. But, you know, these were younger people, so my classmates were all younger than me. And all of a sudden, you know, I had a feeling of belonging. And it's very interesting that at one point I was thinking, you know, I'm going to miss that when I go back to Germany.
1: Jack Basky, thank you very much for joining me on the big interview on Monocle 24. Jack's memoir, Deep Undercover: My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB spy in America is available wherever good books are sold, and his 12-part podcast series, The Agent, is available on Spotify. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle, edited by Steph Chungu, and researched by Lillian Fawcett. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.